Chris. So it's great to have you back on Combat Sports Clinic podcast. Obviously, I've talked to you a lot since the last time you uh, uh, you did a podcast with us, and I know that you've had a lot of experience in that time, and you've thought about a lot of uh, um, ideas when it comes to strength conditioning and mixed martial arts. So I thought it'd be a good time to, to catch up and um, to get your current thoughts on the state of the industry. Um, so, I think one of the first things to, to talk about, obviously, the situation at the moment while we're, rec- while we're recording this, um, we've got the coronavirus crisis going on. So gyms are closed and a lot of people are um, struggling to find ideas and ways of training and ways of keeping up their training. Um, have you got any thoughts about that? What are you doing yourself? Um, yeah, um, well, this has been a common sort of conversation with a lot of coaches sort of uh, locally and sort of internationally just off the uni course mm-hmm. and how we're sort of getting people to get a training effect. Um, I think for like the general population, it's pretty easy. Like there's so much content out there of home workouts, body weight workouts, whatever sort of you can do pain free and safely and progressively. I think for normal people that can go crazy with that and sort of any activity is good activity with, with the, you know, a lot of people and I actually see more people going for runs, walks, doing exercise that don't normally do it. So, <laughs> you know, there, there is a blessing yeah. behind yeah. it all potentially. And, um, for athletes, I think it's a little bit harder and it depends what you have access to yes. um, and your training, age, training, history, those kinds of things. Um, what I'm trying to shift a lot of my guys to do is almost treated as a little bit of an off season. Um, unless you've got like a fully fledged gym, I don't, you've got to be honest with yourself and say it's going to be tough to get massively stronger during this time. Um, not to say you can't improve certain facets of, of strength, but it's not feasible to be, unless you've got your own home gym, you know, squatting, deadlifting, heavy, those kinds of traditional exercises are a little bit limited. Um, so, what I've got a lot of others is more extensive work. <laughs> so what I mean by that is sort of the, the an off season, so it's, it's sort of longer runs or, or cardiac output work, however you want to um, use that. I know like I'm quite a big fan of Joel Jameson and his work and he used to prescribe a lot of cardiac output circuits. So skipping, shadow boxing, whether it's running, biking, all these kinds of um, low intensity activities mm-hmm. and the adaptations you get off that are actually very unique and, and important for mixed martial arts. Um, Here's a plug on the page and uh, a friend of mine done an, an essay on aerobic adaptations for MMA and why it's so important to do. Um, so check it out. <laughs> but, um, Excellent. Um, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll put the links in the show notes as well. Um, so, uh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's an area that gets missed by a lot of athletes or mixed martial artists in particular. Um, don't... It... I mean, once upon a time, everyone was out doing road work regularly and then someone discovered high-intensity intervals and Tabatas. And I think in many circles, I know we've talked about this before, um, but uh, that lower-intensity cardiac output, um, a lot of the time that can get pushed to one side with everything else going on, I think. So it is, as you say, a really good opportunity for people to catch up on that. and. Um, and to give it a good length of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even if you start looking at bits of research and you'll always find different mm-hmm. papers say different things, um, but the, the one, the adaptations are slightly different mm-hmm. and two, the, the more trainable. So yes. what that is that, that, you, that 
everyone can have a more trainable effect off that type of training comparatively to, mm. for example, like the glycolytic system, which like you say, interval training, which everyone seems to love, which there's, there's no yeah. problem with that. Um, but this is a really good time to do that steady aerobic work. Um, it's a really good time to be doing things like extensive jumps or you, know, you can do them in your house, skipping. Sort of, again, you build, think about building a, a capacity in this time. It's the same with the strength work. You can add in a little bit higher volume, potentially high repetition um, work. And you're really building capacities for work down the line, which is how I like to explain off-seasons and in-seasons for MMA guys. You're mm. always training year-round, but you know, you're working c- capacities in this time and then they will tie into work that you do down the line. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a good chance to work on some things that you might not normally work on mobility, like I say, mobility, low intensity, cardio, um, some potentially muscular endurance stuff. And e- even in that, that respect, some of the benefits you get off some of the sort of uh, lower load, higher volume sort of one by 20 ish programs that's mm-hmm. quite popular at the moment in SNC circles, yeah. you get a little bit more structural adaptation, tendon, tendons, ligaments, those kinds of things. So, and where you, whereas when you're in camp, you're sparring and you're lifting minimal dose strength work, heavy strength to keep an keep a stimulus and you're beating your body up. It's a chance to kind of give it time to recover now. Absolutely. I mean, I've been rediscovering kettlebell circuits um, just because it's something convenient to do. I've got some kettlebells in my house. I can find a bit of space, just go through some routines. And it's, it's just easy. Um, I think it's one of those that uh, is finding finding something rather than rather than nothing I think a lot of the time um, are you still working with people uh, via video and Skype and things like that yeah so so what I've kind of aimed for is, is I'm trying to work with current clients um, certain people if they are really keen to get working during this time they, they can but I'm not trying to use it as a, as a chance to sort of um, advertise so to speak at this point in time <laughs> I'm really just trying to make sure the clients that I work with and the athletes I work with mm-hmm get some good quality information. So we're using like WhatsApp at the moment because it is almost a day-to-day um, planning and reassessing based on what they've got access to, what equipment they have, you know, and, yeah. and obviously the government regulations keep changing. So yeah. we've kind of just day by day at the moment. And and I think you hit the nail on the head like, like with the kettlebell circuits as in, I see a lot of people going, oh, well, this is optimal and this, and we can get the, like I'll be brutally honest, I don't think you can get as good a training in this mm. period as you would um, if you had full access to the gym. And, and anyone who's saying you can is selling snake oil, in, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. But mm-hmm. something is better than nothing. And, and it's a kind of like nutrition, you know, uh, 80% is better than 100 You know, 80% is good. You, yeah. you haven't got a, um, the stress and anxiety of worrying about all these perfect programs and yes. perfect nutrition the anxiety it causes is worse than the outcome of it yeah. in, in, in the first place, you know? Yeah. And I think as well, it, it, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that for most people, actually, they don't need something that's absolutely perfect. They need something that's sustainable. Um, I mean, this is what I talk to people about all the time with rehab. It's I'd rather have somebody who's doing three exercises consistently rather than somebody who's do, spending an hour and a half. You know, if I, give, I can give them the perfect rehab plan. It takes them an hour and a half to do it. And they'll do it once and that's it. Um, So I'd always rather give someone something that's sustainable and something done consistently is better than the perfect thing that they're not going to get around to. 
Um, Absolutely. And look, that, that's sort of something I see like in MMA circles anyway. Now we've with S&C coaches is, is the chasing um, and I love reading geeky periodization schemes and like triphasic and all yeah. these kinds of plans. But some of the guys, you know, they can't detain chin-ups or, you know, the pro athletes and they're just about squat the body weight and not that strength's the be-all and end-all, but <laughs> sometimes like, yeah, the basic program just done well year-round. For most guys, is all they need. Yeah. Um, they don't need elaborate schemes. They just need something consistently that they can do to keep an adaptation. Like, I think it gets um, oversold, the the fancy periodization schemes and all those kinds of the perfect plan is yeah. the one you'll do. Yeah, you know? I think. I mean, if you're if you're top one percent and you know you're competing against the best in the world, that's one thing. But I think for the the majority of people, the biggest gains can be got by by picking something and doing doing it regularly, doing it consistently. Um, I think that's uh, that's a really important thing that gets missed. Um, I mean, I know you were. Talking, we were talking before about how there isn't a one-size-fits-all strategy that's perfect for everybody, and how you know there, there are lots of different things that can work. Um, say a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, that, that's exactly exactly the the point where I feel um, a lot of people can get good stimulus and get good training by just committing to something that's coached well, that's coached safely. And come into it, and I come from a very uh, traditional SNC background, yeah. and and I, I still believe that most of the stuff um, we do is, is is backed by science. Is backed as a we have reasoning why we do what we do, and it, and especially in other sports that uh, uh, their success is qualified on stopwatch or time or weightlifting and mm. we can really measure performance we've obviously yeah. mixed martial arts and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu it's, it's there's such a technical and tactical and psychological component yeah. it's very hard to know is the plan you're doing good and it's very hard to know you see what the best guys in the world are yeah, doing yeah absolutely but, I mean, I mean they're just the best guys in the world yeah I mean, for a sprinter you know you can you know if that person's got faster then you're doing something right but yeah, did you, do your job? you haven't you got that, that, that easy measurement in the same way. So, uh, and it kind of causes, I feel like it causes a, a confusion because the, like, there are a lot of like gimmicks and, and sort of crappy training modalities out there, I, I think, as well. Um, and they can kind of sometimes hide behind the fact of like, well, they've got a really good athlete or Mm. whatever it may be yeah um but but onto the point of yeah i do think just committing to a particular whether it's philosophy is, is it a good coach should be forever changing philosophies and not sitting in my opinion in, in one sort of camp you know do you use powerlifting exercises yeah do you use uh jumps potentially yeah do you use loaded jumps do you use olympic lifts do you use all, all of these mm. things you know they're all um, tools and it's the right tool for the right athlete Absolutely, rather than yeah. holding and going every one of my athletes does a back squat because yeah. I don't you know for, for certain issues I don't anymore um, or every one of my athletes does um, I don't know gymnastics and the, everyone's got to do a straddle planche or a Cossack squat astagrass with and if you can't then you know, everyone likes yeah. to have absolutes. Um, but I think like what I look at is like, 
if you commit, to, if you get coached well, if you look at all the best athletes, you know, I've seen Jan Danaha's instructional about 10 minutes of it, but I had to turn it <laughs> off. But it was like, uh, he's talking about GSP and he, and he was basically saying like how he'd done all these modalities and they all worked. And, and I think it's important to take note of that, that look, he done traditional SNC, Olympic lifting, sprinting, gymnastics. Um, one, he's an incredibly talented athlete already. Mm-hmm. And two, sometimes what, what gets you to the dance isn't necessarily what, what you yeah. do when you're there. Yeah. Um, much and much the same with on sort of mixed martial arts skills training, which we'll maybe yeah. talk about in a little bit. But, mm-hmm. you know, once a guy's met certain prerequisites of strength, in my, in my eyes, you don't have to start you don't have to keep chasing those numbers and other attributes, you know, other things that you want, might want to chase, whether the mobility, whether you're chasing speed, you can kind of go into that a little bit more. But I do think like some people up and change different programs so much that they never actually get a decent stimulus in. Mm. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think we've all met the kind of athlete who's is always chasing that next best thing. And, you know, this week it's, it's CrossFit or next week it's kettlebells and the week after it's some other thing that they've just seen on social media that everyone's doing. And I think there's a, there's a real danger with that, that because you, you spend so much time chasing that next big thing that's going to magically make everything better. Um, you miss the benefits of, of that consistency, which is the what what really makes the difference. Um, I mean, I think I look at um, I look at a lot of the people of gymnastics and GSP, like I said, but he done loads of weightlifting before that. Mm. Um, speed of sports and other kind of extreme and where all they do their athletes do a lot of plyometrics, which are great. Yeah, but then you're taking a lot of fighters that have spent years lifting weights and getting them to do plyometrics. That's pretty good. That's yeah. a good idea. But yeah. the, the, I mean, uh, the best coaches who I kind of look up to kind of implement it all on a, on a needs basis of who they've got in front of them. Yeah. Um, and I think using all to, the problem with that is, is it doesn't sell as well. And you need to be quite a critical thinker as a coach. I yeah. feel like what you see a lot of coaches do is, is they fall into a, a system and then they have to sell the system and then yeah. they're just professing how good their system is yeah. um, rather than kind yeah. of um, being able to pick, uh, critically think and pick, mm-hmm. okay, well, this guy has, an, has a background of Olympic lifting. He's competent. We might use some variations with him. This guy doesn't, but if we do some loaded trap bar jumps, yeah, he can. Um, does that make sense? Like Absolutely. I think... I mean, it's interesting because I think one of my um, clients who I was working with um, on some injury um, rehab, he said he said something interesting. He said, "I can see how the way you think about osteopathy, the way you think about treatment, is the same as the way you think about mixed martial arts. In that, I'm very much a fan of taking whatever works, and I'll borrow stuff from physios. I'll borrow." From, um, um, yoga instructors, I'll borrow stuff from you know, Pilates, from st- strength and conditioning, from all over the place. Um, if something works, that's all I'm interested in. And I think it's very much the same thing. If you've got all these different tools, but the the really key thing is knowing how they fit together and what to use where with who. So I think that's it's that mentality. I think is something that a lot of 
coaches and a lot of therapists don't really have, I found. I mean, there are a lot of good coaches who do, uh, but there's also a lot of people who, as you say, like to buy into a system. And it's all about, well, this is how we do it in this system, um, rather than saying, okay, well, let's analyze the situation. Let's figure out what this person needs, and then we'll build it around that. Um, and as you say, I think the critical thinking element of that is massive because that's something that uh, um, it really sets some coaches apart from the others, I find. And when I talk to people about how to look for somebody who's good, whether that's in an injury treatment sense or whether it's in a coaching sense, um, it's all about finding people who are not too sure about any one thing. It's you know, find somebody who has a lot of different tools in the toolbox and knows when to use them. So it's, yeah, all, absolutely. it's not just a case of throwing the kitchen sink at things. It's knowing what you want to reach for in which situation. And I, I think uh, the professions of sort of, or, or the, the two industries of, of martial arts, mixed martial arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and then so traditional S&C, if you're looking at like um, traditional S&C, guys who are working with sort of like Gaelic rugby, American football, there's been a massive push towards like crawling and tumbling. Uh, I mean, Dan mm. Jano spoke highly of tumbling, but, like tumbling cartwheels, forward rolls, bear crawls, sort of um, for preparation for collision sports, such mm. as like your Gaelic football, yeah. your rugby. Um, so there's definitely been a crossover from from sort of some of the better stuff from martial arts going over that way. And mm. then like slowly yelling the other way where guys are going, well, we need to put some load through our tissues. We can't just do yoga and kettlebells yeah. all year yeah. and expect to be, you know, if you look at like the UFCPI have released their handbook on um, on training um, based on on the research with their athletes, and if you look at the physical characteristics, like you gotta like work pretty damn hard to get into that sort of echelon of physical preparedness. And there'll always be exceptions to the rule, mm. but the likelihood is, is like I think we've spoke about this before. The likelihood is you are not the exception. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Everyone likes to think you, they're the exception. <laughs> If you're listening to podcasts like this or you're, you're deep into reading, the likelihood is you're not the exception because the exception's eating McDonald's, <laughs> wakes up in the morning and he's the fastest in the gym with, you know, <laughs> or he's got a gas tank and you're like, how have you got that? And they're like, you know, yeah. the genetics can play a big part. So yeah. um, I think we should look at what the elite have and what they're doing and sort of, you know, we build models based on that to get guys from amateur or lower level to that. doesn't mean that the models change, you know, it's obviously the same as, as anything, but having a general thought process in how to get guys to look towards that level and what adaptations and what things important. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a, there's a common template there, but with people, it's, it's all about tweaking that. I mean, one of the things I say to people, so I don't, I don't use those pre-printed exercise sheets when I'm doing rehab with somebody. Um, I know that they're quite popular in some circles, but what I've always said is that actually what's going to work for the, that person in front of me will vary quite a lot. So I want to get that person in and assess them and then figure out what they need rather than just having a go-to, right, here's a plan. And I know that that's the way that you work when you're writing plans for athletes as well. It's not sort of the yeah, test. You've got, you've got a, um, an idea of what a template might look like, but then it's customizing that to the to the individual. And that's where I think the yeah. the real value add is. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've met 
the mistake of doing the reverse earlier in my coaching career where you go, you find like you find a, a sort of a plan or a system that works really well, uh, whatever that may be, contrast training, triphasic mm-hmm. training, all of the, all these different types of training. And you're like, right, well, I'll run this with this guy. And it's like, this guy doesn't need that yet. And mm-hmm. I was still like, it's kind of like how I, how I try and, I'm not a dietitian, but how I kind of coach dieting is, is you want a, you want the biggest stimulus you can with the least effort because you're going to plateau and you need yeah. to go, you need, you need to get a stimulus again, you're going to plateau. So if you can get uh, improvements off, you know, basic lifts, two sets of five on, on a major strength lift, why are you doing like exaggerated eccentrics or essentially, yeah. you know, people just like using yeah. big words. And it's like the guy could just do two sets of five on a, on a lift twice mm-hmm. a week for the next year. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there's boredom and you don't think you're doing nothing special yeah. and there are the psychological elements of thinking you're doing something unique that yeah. no one else is. Yeah. But, I mean, you don't need that then. But then yeah. two, three years down the line, you have a guy, mm-hmm. he might need that then. And that may be the, the difference in the 5% or the 2% yeah. and that 2% can win you at the elite level fight. So I think it's like with diet. Okay, maybe we'll start with just tracking your calories and having some small calorie restriction. Mm-hmm. Then maybe we add a little bit of activity. You know, and we add on and yeah. add on and add on or take away. Take, rather than going, right, we're on 1,500 calories doing fasted cardio five mornings a week and, da, 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 you know, yeah. I feel like the same with S&C. It's like, well, what can, what's the biggest stimulus we can get with the least effort? Because down the line, yeah. we're going to need tricks up our sleeve to get to drive yeah. adaptation. That, that's a really important um, concept, actually, that idea of minimal effective dose that uh, – that we like to talk about. It's not, and this is something that I, I say all the time, but with so many athletes, there's this idea of the more I do, the better. Yeah, if in doubt, I'll just do a bit more. You know, we'll throw in an extra run. We'll throw in a few extra reps. We'll throw in another set here. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do a bit of extra grappling or BJJ class that wasn't in the program. Um, I said, actually, what we need is the the least amount of effort for the biggest adaptation. I know things get diff- different when we start putting technical element into it because there's there's that motor learning. But certainly in terms of just that physical adaptation, it's about how can we, what do we need to be doing? And you do get the point where, like with prescribing drugs to people, you know, if you just because two paracetamol is good, it doesn't mean that 20 will be 10 times as effective. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's the same with exercise. It's making sure that people understand that this is the optimal amount for you and doing more is going to be less effective just as doing less will be less effective. Um, and I think that's something that I think takes a change of mindset for a lot of people. Um, this idea that actually going off and doing a bit extra in your own time isn't going to make things better. It's just going to interfere with the program. Um, is that something that you yeah. struggle with with some of your clients as well? Yeah, and, and I think with what you touched on with, with the skill-based stuff and motor learning, um, I'm having a conversation with a, a friend tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. Will Starks. He's an IMF champion, but he's an SNC coach in America. Mm-hmm. And they're very big on MRV, which is like maximum recoverable volume. Yes. Um, which which yeah. will be interesting. Hopefully I'll, I'll make some notes and, and uh, I'm not sure whether we're going to record it or, ju- or just make notes, but I think the hard thing of put the maximum recovery volume is essentially like how, how much can you, ha- how much volume can you handle? Now the problem we have with MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and sports of that is like 
any one class can be really different. And I think until the sports get to that point where uh, there's kind of continuity in your partners and yeah, the level, I can do a Monday wrestling class and it can be scaled to it's like a, depending who my partners are, it's a five out of 10. Mm-hmm. Or I can do a wrestling class and it can yeah. be a nine out of 10. Yeah. And then that, how quantifying all of these things alongside S and C and runs and, and sort of, cause I'd love to run high, high low days. Yeah. If I had a fight team and I had, and I, and I had a full team rolling on the same days at the same times. Yeah. Um, I would be having high and low days with, with all our guys, yes. but the, the reality of training sometimes is like your Monday morning wrestling class. If you have some easy partners, you don't break a sweat where that's your high day. Yeah. But then Tuesday you're coming to jujitsu and there's a guy who's on his game and he wants, you know, he comes in, does his no gi twice a week or three times a week. And he want you're an MMA fighter and he wants to go and have, have, have a go yes. and whatever. Yeah. You've got a target. And you end up work, yeah. And you end up working really, really hard on a Tuesday yeah. and then you're sparring on Wednesday. And I think it's very, in theory, it's great. High, mm-hmm. low days and, you know, the highs are high, the lows mm-hmm. are low. We do, we go and do technique work, but the, the, the fundamental problem in MMA at the moment is conscious people aren't super rich. The sport mm-hmm. doesn't create a lot of money for fighters at the moment, majority. Yeah. <laughs> so like they haven't got the, the money to pay for a camp for just isolated on themselves and their training schedule. So we all work as a team, mm-hmm. which is great for, for, for being a team and, and sort of the camaraderie that comes with that. But trying to individualize practices then becomes very yeah. difficult and uh trying to run again trying to run like the perfect yeah. um periodization can become becomes tricky you know yeah. ideally you would want your skills training to tie in with your snc training so your training block is all all encompassed you know for example you were doing an aerobic block and you're doing cardiac output work and you're doing like explosive repeat jumps or something like that and then your skill works all extensive too for those two three four weeks mm. but the rest of the gym's got to be on the same way yeah. think, so it's just yeah. not feasible so yeah it, it's, it's tough like that concept of volume i think it's really tough to quantify in mma and that's why i think people yeah. feel like they want to do more if they have a good if they have a session and they feel um mm-hmm they didn't work that hard. They're like, right, I'll just go and do some sprints after. And I've been guilty of it. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'll just go do some sprints because that wasn't hard enough for me and I've got to yeah. fight. And then it comes down to like, what I'm learning is like the psychological game then, yeah. um, which is something I don't have a ton of um, experience in myself as a practitioner, but I see people do a lot of crazy training for the mind, not for the body. Yeah. Because the mind's, the, if they do that hard push or that hard thing, they, in their head, can justify to themselves that they're ready to fight. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and like that's part of it, I guess as well. Like, yeah. That, that, like, yeah. It's, that, it, it's that whole thing of, uh, I threw up twice. It's great. Um, it's, uh, it's getting that idea. Of, oh, it, I'm, it, I must have achieved something because I worked really hard and because yeah. it was, it, it it felt awful, so I, I must have must have been doing something worthwhile. Um, and like you said, there's two elements that there's the physical element, and the reality of that is actually maybe that wasn't the most effective way to get that stimulus. Um, and then there's the psychological element, which I think for fighters is it's an important side of it as well because it's that ability mentally to to go past that sort of barrier and to to push yourself when you don't feel like you've got any more left in the tank. So. 
I think that is an important thing. It's not something that you can completely ignore. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't always sit comfortably with a well-balanced, well-planned training program. No, yeah, and, and, it, and like that's that is the balancing act, and, and like coaches, S and C coaches would be like, well, mental toughness is like being able to sit back and do the plan and yeah. follow the plan, and like that's true, and that is true mental toughness, kind of like in this scenario we've got going on now, and but mental toughness is just doing what we know is right, yeah. isolating, you know, like. Like that's mental toughness. Carrying on with your day and showing I don't like that's not mental toughness. But yeah. it's kind of the same with training. Sticking to the plan and doing what's written down is, is true mental toughness and having confidence yeah. in your ability. Yes. But we're all human, we all have self-doubt. And uh, you know, I'm lucky to have seen a lot of high, high level professional fighters have been around them and and seeing how they all differently internally work. They all need different things. I've yeah. seen guys not yeah. spar. I've seen guys spar three times a week. I've seen guys do need shark tanks to get beastings. I've, you know, I've seen guys do the whole spectrum. And I like I have theories on what what I think is best for me and how yeah. I would coach amateurs. Um, but it doesn't mean other ways can't work. You know, you've always got to get that buy-in, haven't you? I mean, it's it's the same when I work with with patients. Um, I try to see it as a collaborative thing. It's we're working together to figure out the best plan. It's not me telling somebody what they should do. Although I've got all the experience of, I know what's worked in the past. I've worked with lots of injured people before. I know what the evidence says, but at the same time, that person knows about their own experience and they know what, um, how things feel and they know psychologically, you know, what they're most likely to be motivated to do, what fits with their daily life, their routines, things like that. So it, it's about trying to integrate all of that and to come up with a plan that everyone's on board with. And so, because I think sometimes when you, if you write a plan for somebody and they can't see where you're going with it, sometimes they'll go through the motions, but you can see that they haven't quite bought it. Um, I, is that something that, that you've, you find with, the, with your clients as well? That uh, you ha- sometimes you have to persuade them that actually yes this is gonna this is gonna work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm quite fortunate with a lot of the combat sports athletes because they look at my which they shouldn't do because most of my career I've done a load of crap, <laughs> so much stupid stuff you couldn't imagine. Um, and I hope I like to draw on those experiences to make sure other people don't do them. But because of my track record competing. In, in mixed martial arts and, and BJJ and things like that, they tend to have immediate buy-in a lot of the fighters. Um, to some extent, because then there's also a crowd that just completely don't like SNC, um, but I don't work. We just don't work yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but most people who come to work with me tend to have quite good buy-in from the combat sports community. I mean, in terms of customising programs, oh, but I believe that the big, the biggest problem with customising everything is in in MMA. The still fact remains is is a head coach. Yeah, uh, I, I really think that's the, the biggest the biggest drawback that stops customization and like using something like MRV or using yeah. sort of. I know other people use like workload like workload yeah. management Excel sheets. I know you've used them with me in the past. And um, yeah, we we're, we're talking to. Um, to Tim about this um, when we were talking about 
tracking perceived exertion and track, uh, yeah. sort of acute chronic workload ratio. So you're tracking how, how hard you're working and making sure that you're not increasing that too much from one yeah. week to the next. Which I think works well with mm. like measurable, um, again, <laughs> like, and I think we, we, it's kind of like we, talk, we talked about having a, a template to some extent of where we want to go, but you're all, you'll branch off or you'll modify based on the individual. I think that's kind of how you have to take workload management. You know, like a, an RPE scheme is great or, a, you know, a, a, an intensity based on your heart rate for, for running or for whatever it may be. Sometimes, I'm, like for MMA, because it is so sporadic and, and chaotic in terms of your, your practices, yeah. it, is, it, it, it needs really, in my opinion, like synchronization between a head coach and an yeah. S&C coach that they're working in incongruence with the skill sessions and you know so the but again it comes down to funding it comes down to the where the sport's at currently in the uk and things like that but where if the skills coach the skills coach can know where their athletes at how he's feeling and we can use subjective measures and sort of um when an athlete comes into our gym on, on an afternoon how they're looking how they're feeling after the morning practice the body language can give away like you can ask them how they are and you know some of the athletes measure heart rate some measure hrv and things like that but yeah. um there needs to be synchronization between coaches and yeah. mma still doesn't really have a ton of head coaches overseeing what's going on um across the board uh, I don't know if you know you have a lot of contacts around the country as well, but I still don't see a lot of um, head coaches that are, that, are, that really even know what they're doing skills wise. They're athletes, never mind S and C and running and energy systems work and all these things as well. Um, I mean, like well, I both a friend of ours who I think does a good job with the skills. He's uh, Dean Garnett who coaches the mm. like the amateur guys up north. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he's at least they have a, a system and they have. Uh, I could I can imagine he knows what his guys are doing on each day of the week and when they're doing pads, when they're doing this. But I, I know certainly from my own experience, people still, uh, they don't really know what they're doing day by day. Um, they don't have a head coach overseeing day by day. <laughs> it's, it's very tough to implement what we would consider like really good sports science practice and sort of like... like yeah, that we look at from other sports yeah. and, and then make it for MMA because the reality is at the moment it is just still yeah. quite chaotic yeah. and it's, it's difficult because there is so much to cover as well and I think with the best world in the world if you're trying to get I mean there's that tension between trying to get the physical adaptation right and you know the right amount of training to, to, to peak your fitness but also to get enough in terms of the the skills learning and the motor learning um, 100% and I, I think the thing is with skills learning obviously to, to point the more the better you know you you want to um i mean if you're if you're talking about playing a musical instrument for example you know you have people at the top level are practicing hours per day because yeah. you know in terms of just learning the skills that's what you need um but at the same time if you put that into something that's intensely physical like mixed martial arts um you're going to get massive overtraining, you're going to get injuries, you're going to get burnout. So it, there is that tension there, and that's, that's a difficult one to manage. Do you, do you track heart rate at all with your athletes? With the ones that are willing to sort of buy in, yeah, I'll, I'll track sort of like, um, 
resting morning heart rate. Mm-hmm. And depending on, again, how keen they are, I sometimes get them to wear it for when they're sparring and we can yeah. sort of monitor between and rounds. That's, that's an interesting thing. I think the technology is making that increasingly easier to do because you can put a heart rate on somebody that will store the data and then you can download it to the watch or the phone um, when they finished. So you can yeah. get um, a graph of the heart rate throughout that session. And you can find I mean, I use that in yeah. my last camp um, yeah. when I fought in October. I mm. used that in sparring. And, and it it was actually like really interesting. And, and I think this someone um, asked me a question yesterday on social media, like, what is conditioning? And, and you know, you have the adaptations that we can get from training, mm. but we also then have technical, tactical things, you know, um, even like nutrition interventions, all of these kinds of things that affect conditioning that we don't necessarily associate with like with conditioning, if that makes sense. Like, if, you know, if you roll with someone who's much better than you, you get tired much quicker than rolling with someone who you're better than. Mm. So I think having a... <laughs> Having a, tra- a track of what your heart rate's doing, you can. Like, I thought I was working really hard in my last camp, and and I'm getting tired in, in training. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the data, I was like, that it's perceived. You know, mm-hmm. it, a lot of it was. I was nowhere near thresholds yeah. that I can be. And um, I think I think it, the data is useful for, for options like that. I think you can go too far down the. The um that road of going, I woke up and my HRV says this because a lot of the data is not sound in terms of reliability yet. On, yeah, on you, the you can't look at that on its own and overrule how your body's feeling based on what the number says. No, I think no, you've, got, you've got to look at the two things together. Um, like I'm not sparring today because my HRV is five above what it should be or five below what it should be, or and it's like like. We need to use the good bits of sports science, in my opinion, yeah. and, and the good bits of, of, of sort of up-to-date physical therapy, strength conditioning. We also need to look at the guys have been doing this for a long time and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of intuition's probably the best thing. Like we all know that session when we should have stopped and we carry on and we get injured or, yes. <laughs> you know, um, you spar a few rounds and you feel rusty and you like, I know boxing coaches that will call it and they go, not today. You go go home today, come back Friday, yeah. we spar on Friday and you, and you go again. And that's not a date or a, you know, a metric, that's yeah. coaching. And, that's and I think coaching, yeah. that people talk about the art of coaching mm-hmm. or, and it's the, in my opinion, it's, it's been able to get us to do some of the stuff we know is good, where it's heavier lifting, faster lifting, you know, the things that we know are work and transfer, yeah. but then the art is, is how do we get it into, into the sport in the practical zone? And I still think that the head coach is the is the hardest thing with it because you, to get it to work, you need buy-in with everyone in, yeah. in my eyes. Um, and and I still like, I still don't see that. People can say they have buy-in off their athletes, but I see athletes going to two different S and C coaches, three different pad men. <laughs> you know, as much as we can say we got buy-in, maybe when they're with you, but trying to get an all-encompassing program together is really still. Difficult. Yeah. yeah, I think there there is still that thing of looking for the magic bullet, isn't there? Sometimes, um, people think if, if they if they, you know, if, if I just cover all my bases, then uh, it'll be 
whereas you know as we've said several times it's it's all about that consistency and having that uh, that well planned approach yeah absolutely um but but on your point i do think the i do think tracking heart rate is a is a is a good useful tool um mm-hmm. one in the mornings i think it, it, it's it's a tool it's not the be all and end all. But I do also think in between sparring and recovery between rounds, because that can dictate where your energy system training should be potentially dictated in, in your program. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is why, I mean, I'm a bit after, but everyone's mad on. It's really in vogue at the minute, like um, red zone runs and okay. super high intensity runs, like right. like the, the, just the various, various, like, aerobic intervals and anaerobic intervals and things like that but it's like red zone red zone red zone we want to be in the red zone but like again I touched on it the trainability of staying you know once you go above lactate threshold you've trained when you're redlining yeah it doesn't matter like there are certain benefits and I'm not saying don't do it but it's really heavily pushed at the moment it's like well when you hit that red zone look if I try and punch you as hard as I can for a minute I'm gassed Mm. you know or, or if I'm wrestling as hard as I can for a minute, I don't care how fit you are. Like you're going to get tired off that burst, and and yeah. I think yeah, yeah. Um, the idea should be um, during a guy called Dewey Nielsen. Uh, he runs the FRC, but he he talked a lot about this. Is we don't with that aerobically fit and our, our capacity is that high that we're not getting into that red zone that often. Hmm. And if we're getting near it we recover and then that comes into play with tactical and technical considerations of you know how do you preserve how do you burst and then preserving energy in order to not go into that that <laughs> high end because you know you will get tired and then you can look at fighting styles and go well how do they regulate that and you look like like Nick Diaz workhorse very low low intensity but super high volume could keep his pace Yol Romero will burst for 10 seconds and go for a walk for 3 minutes yeah. so I think like what my kind of point is, I'm rambling a bit, but it's the, the synchronization of who's the athlete, how do they fight, <laughs> what skills do they use when they fight, yeah. what's the skills coach doing, what's the SNC coach doing. You know, like I always give the, the jiu jitsu guys do a lot of like mobility and rightly so. And, you know, if you're going to pull guard and play reverse de la Hiva and go upside down and, and, and enter on the legs and invert loads, that's really sought after. And maybe you don't need super strong lower body strength and things like that I mean I still think you do but okay if you can give the benefit of that and say that's a more a bigger priority is lower body mobility you take that to MMA or wrestling where leg drive is super important on shooting takedowns that same training now is is, is like negligible and even in jiu-jitsu if, you, if you've got a guy who's shooting blaster walls and guard passing his requisites are different than a guard puller who's going to be inverting his mobility requisites, his energy system requisites, his strength requisites. Part, you know, so I think we need to have a look at the individual as an athlete, then the technical and tactical skills that they're, they're using, and again, like the the genetics of the athlete are going to somewhat dictate what what they're naturally. People, oh, I'm just good at this. There's like a reason you can tell the guys who are going to shoot a double leg and who end, and the guys who can who've got knockout power and the guys who are volume punchers and it, it is somewhat based on genetic potential like other sports like I'm not going to be a basketball player you know if you, if I'm not going to be a sprinter you know um, no, no matter how hard I try I'm not and MMA you, your natural I mean you could look at my MMA game even now it's built around what I'm good at and like 
some of the stuff I'm not so good at, I don't really have much control over. So it takes an athlete, a coach, and then if you add on an S&C coach to put together a plan for that individual athlete, you know, all encompassing, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's making sure that the you know, the physical attributes and the, the how that fighter is sort of technically, tactically, strate- strategically, making sure that those things add up um, and they, they sort of correspond to each other. And if you've got somebody who's a um, technically is a volume puncher but doesn't have the gas tank to go with it, you've got a problem. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, again, I say if you've got somebody who likes to shoot double leg but doesn't have the, the strength and the power to go with it, again, you've got a problem. So it's it's making sure that the training all fits together and that everyone's on the same page. You've got the S&C coach working together with the technical coaches to make sure that you're, you're all coming at it from the same same yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where I, that's where I'd love the sport to go. Would be you know your skills coach is going look the the guy, he keeps shooting a shot and he, he's getting extended. He, his head goes down into the ground. You know, he crumbles. He gets in great, and I've seen guys yeah. do it. They get into a shot great. They're on your hips, mm-hmm. but they just don't have any leg drive. They, they crumble. The heads down by the time you keep, and like them to go to the coach well, and even like yourself, like. Maybe we should look at some of your neck strength work. Yeah. Maybe we should look at some, you know, like uh, stability in the lower back, some some deadlifts. Maybe we should look at, um, you know, some anti-extension work, some ab wheel roll, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, the, like, we can sort of integrate where they're struggling in the sport to sort of what we do in the moment. And, and that's yeah. sport specific in my eyes, not mm-hmm. having someone, you know, shoot a double leg while holding a kettlebell. Yeah. But, yeah, we're shooting where um, the problems are, and and then working on those problems above and beyond what we get in the sport in the weight room. You yeah. know, is I mean, where, that's where a really valuable thing actually, because I think a lot of the time what can look like a technical fault actually turns out to be a, a strength and conditioning problem um, when you when you dig into why that's happening. I mean, the, the one of people getting their head stuffed on the double leg, for example, I think is an absolute classic uh, because. It, the number of times I've seen that happen and people are, are just, um, they're, they're putting their head in the wrong place. And it looks like it's a technical mistake. But actually, when you l- look into why that's happening, nine times out of 10, it'll be because they've got, not got the neck strength to, to do it correctly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because they're worried about what's going to happen to them because they know that they've not got the neck strength to have the confidence in it. And, I mean, that, and that to me is, um, you know, uh, we talk about like dynamic correspondence, which is just, really giving us a job of why, why we do what we do yeah. um, as an S&C coach. But that, that is, that's how we should be looking at how can we transfer to the sport above and beyond what we get in the sport so that we, we, go, we get new capacities then from, from yeah. training and then we go and relearn the sports skill again because when you, when you do have changes in the weight room, they still need to be manifested on the mat. So that's it might great. mean you have to go and learn that single leg you know, keeping your head up with that double leg or whatever that position may be, again, off your yeah. skills coach, once you've got your newfound capacity. Exactly, and that um, transfer, um, we can't just assume it's going to happen automatically. And no, yeah, just because you've got, I mean, I know guys who are really strong in the weight room and, and they're not very strong on the mat and vice versa. I know guys the other way. Well, my, in my like ideology is like, do both. 
maximize both attributes and yeah. to the best of your ability. Um, and like the reverse works in terms of conditioning. Some guys can be super fit on metrics, resting heart rate, recoverability, but they're just not very good at the sport. Yes. Or they can't deal yeah. with their emotions when they compete and they, you know, anxiety and things like that. And, and they get very, very tired competing because um, they're, just, they're just burning so much energy. And they're super fit. The yeah. issue might be psychological or technical then, not physical. Yeah. So it, swing, it swings both ways. A, a technical fault might be because of a physical deficiency and like a, a deemed physical fault might be because you're a psychological effect where you're just really anxious and, and burning up energy or even just you're not technically very good and you're just burning up a load of energy doing nothing so yeah, yeah I mean I mean that's why this is where we come back to that critical thinking about being able to say well this is a problem and then you know to unpack that and figure out well why is that happening and it's not always the obvious thing um and this was you know just telling somebody I'll oh, keep your head up that may not be enough you know, it, I mean, sometimes it's just that person didn't know how to do it correctly. And if you tell them how to do it correctly and get them to do it a few times, they'll be fine. But more often than not, there's a reason they're not doing it correctly. And until you figure out what that reason is, just telling them to do it isn't going to make, make that much difference. Um, so I think that's where you, being able to do that unpacking and sort of that diagnostic work, I think, is, is, is a key part of the... Um, well, coaching skill, really. Um, and as I say, I mean, this is one of the things that, I mean, when we were putting our next strength program together, I'm going to give it a plug now. So, um, <laughs> when we were putting that together, it was all about, right, how do we build the next strength? And then how do we transfer it to the arena where people are going to be using that? And how do we make that specific for what they need? Um, which, uh, I think is something that we always need to be thinking, both from the rehab point of view. So I look at it when I'm working with injured athletes is, okay, how do we get this strong? How do we get that person out of pain? But then how do we transfer that back to doing what that person wants to be able to do again? Yeah. And I think sort of strength training and or strength conditioning is just an extension of that same idea as I see it. It's sort of figuring out, well, what does that person want to be able to do? Why isn't that happening? And how do we get from here to there? Um, yeah. And I think that's why it's, it's a plug on, on kind of ourselves to some extent, mm-hmm. but why having a background in the sport can be beneficial in that mm-hmm. regard. Because I, I see a lot of, um, I see it's very, like I say, it's very popular now. A lot of the a lot of the stuff we do from wrestling drills and things like that are mm-hmm. cropping up in team sports, especially mm-hmm. like evasion team sports. And you start, well, how does that, a pal-off press, which is a great exercise in the gym, no no problem whatsoever. But how does that get us from from some kind of banded pal-off, anti-rotation pal-off press mm-hmm. towards taking a collision and trying to rub a ball off someone yes. or you're getting tackled? You know, how does, yeah. where is the, like, where is the, the grey area between those two things? You, you're in the gym doing a, a band, and don't be wrong, like I have my clients do pal-off presses and yeah. things along those lines. The good mm-hmm. exercise is great. That's drastically different than you running at a high speed and someone trying to wrench a ball out of your arm, or obviously in our sport, getting yeah. launched across the mat by a Greco wrestler and you're yeah. bracing your stomach and all of a sudden something rips or pop, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's creating like drills. And I think that's what the next strength program does well is, is it takes you from remedial kind of strengthening through mm-hmm. the spectrum towards more live work. And like, I feel like all our rehab needs to be like that. 
I mean, yeah. I remember when Absolutely. you worked with me on things before, but that's where you need, to, we worked with Mike Eunice before doing on the mat drills, once his neck got strong, you know, things yeah. like that. But I mean, I think the, the problem is, is you need expertise in the, in the sport to some extent then, um, in order to, to bridge that gap between traditional SNC rehab and then, I mean, and that, and that's the niche of your market, but I, I feel the same in SNC. Um, cause you can make yeah. similar analogies in the weight room as you can on the mat, similar movements, you know, are very, Absolutely. very similar. Um, my coach, one of my coaches, Tom Breeze, like he's been very big on it lately on, on guys of, in terms of like, well, look, if you're doing rows, they're the sat, like a rows finishing mechanics are very similar to finishing a choke. And you know, like, there are similarities that, uh, that crop up across the board. And I think if you've, if you've got an ex- expertise in physical training and, or rehab or SNC and on the mat work, I think that's really where you're going to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, athletes and being yeah. able to help them, help them better. It's understanding the mechanics of how those movements work and sort of which muscles, joints, you know, are being affected and how, how that's, we're making, how we're making that movement happen, I suppose. Um, I mean, one of the things was when I talk to people about posturing up in guard, for example, um, I spend a lot of time talking about the mechanics of that rather than just saying, keep your head up or keep your back straight. Um, it's explaining to people exactly what those, those movements are that you use in order to, to do that. And that's something that I think, again, sometimes, um, people will gloss over because there comes a point where when you're training, you just do it automatically. You don't think about how you're doing it. It's like if you ask somebody to describe what's going on in their head when they're walking, um, it's very hard to do because, well, I just do it. Um, And the same when somebody's been doing something for years and years and years, possibly since they were young, um, and then you ask them to break down, well, how are you doing that movement? Um, They won't always know. But sometimes to get a beginner to do that effectively, you need to be able to break it down more and say, no, we want you to move more like this rather than like that. Um, I mean, a, a commonplace example that I often talk to people about is the hip hinge movement. So when people are bending forwards, and the difference between bending from your hips and bending forwards with your lower back. And both of those are useful movements. We need both of them, but they're different. And a yeah. lot of the time, until you get somebody doing that and you show them the difference, they won't have thought about using those movements differently. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, here, there's a quite quite um, fitting, a, a big, not a big change, but mm-hmm. on, on that note of hip hinging versus reaching. Yes. Yeah. Um, like, I think I've spoke to quite a few S&T coaches and I think a lot do get stuck in mm-hmm. that um Ex, so not extension, but like you, you're looking for neutral at the time, and it's yeah, slightly lower back arch. Done in neutral. Ex, yeah. Extension yeah. of the thoracic, um, yeah. and, and you end up like hip hinging everything. Yeah. And the ability to reach. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine that I've done some work with, and I speak to David Gray, and he was talking about the other day. It's like the rib cage and, and being able to actually move through your thoracic is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me personally it's a big mistake I've made this is one of the things that I want to say like a mistake I've made everything used to look textbook mm-hmm. in the weight room mm-hmm. so my RDLs my squats my everything looked but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm using rigidity to, to do those movements in the weight yeah. room which is great but you've also got to remember other 
important movements like reaching and those kind of things that that will help you from being in pain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's, a mistake I've made. It's something that I think, um, I perhaps more for the jiu-jitsu guys even than the um, MMA lot, but both to some extent, is that a lot of the time when we're doing our strength and conditioning, we don't tend to train things with the back inflection. Because again, there's been that dogma for ages that, oh, you mustn't load a flexed spine. Except as soon as you put somebody in guard, what have you got? You've got a flexed spine. Um, So you're going to load it during the sport. And if you're not training it, if you're not preparing it, um, then that's where you're going to tend to get the problems. Absolutely. I mean, I've been watching a lot of tape because we've been... um locked in because we're on lockdown yeah. and I've been watching like a lot of, a lot of the, the Russian wrestlers and like things like Khabib mm. if you look at how he wrestles I mean yeah. like his head's down his back's flexed but he's <laughs> so strong in that position yeah um, uh, and there's a there's a book I've, I've got uh, a wrestling encyclopedia um, it's a real old text but <laughs> they're doing a ton of bent backs I mean, I'm not saying to everyone go out and lift with a bent back yeah. but they're doing a ton of um bent back lifting and awkward object lifting yeah. and yeah, yeah, these yeah. kinds of things uh, and really it's based on wrestlers of old time I think uh, what's the name I've got it there uh, John Jess wrote it um, but it's a really it's like the, the encyclopedia of wrestling and, and physical preparation yeah. or something along those lines a yellow book you, you can't miss it but like if you look at a lot of their old training methods and then uh, if you look at how the Russians wrestle um, they're all wrestling kind of what we would consider as like bad position but they're strong there. Mm. Um, it's kind of like there's a big movement of like this knees over toes movement right now, mm. like in, in circles, and it's doing loads of stuff on like the balls of your feet, things like sissy squats and isos with your, your knee going right over your toe. And uh, like, it's essentially just building capacity in an awkward mm. position that, mm. so that when you're in that position in your sport or in yeah. life, you're less vulnerable yeah. to injury, you know, which is kind of what you're talking about. Um, with the spine, the same thing. Yeah. It's it's slowly creeping through now is that actually maybe we do need to load these awkward movements because if we're super strong here, yeah. have a weak yank here, that's where injury is going to occur. Absolutely. Although then you'll always get the people who take that too far and overdo it or do it with somebody who's not prepared for it or you know do it inappropriately and that's where you get the problems. Um I mean, as with anything, you know, when, when that becomes your dogma, um, it's, uh, then it's a problem. Um, but it's, it's using that in context along with everything else. And as I always tell people, there is absolutely a, a point to, I mean, I'll use the neutral spine example because it's one that I come across a lot in my work. Um, you know, there's absolutely a point to teaching people how to find what neutral looks like and how to, maintain neutral I think that kind of body awareness is is really useful but it's not the be all and end all and I'll always emphasize to people that I'm not saying that you need to spend the rest of your life with a neutral spine because otherwise you wouldn't have a spine that moved if that's what you were meant to do Um, it moves for a reason and it's about being able to use that appropriately in different positions different movements Um, no absolutely um but yeah, I think like just on that note of um, just things that have really sort of changed my tune on as well. It, mm. oh, I remember the last, last time I was on, 
you just made me think about because it's something neutral spine is one thing I've certainly changed my my tune on to some extent within um, how things look in the gym all the time. Big lifts, absolutely, but doing some awkward object lifting exactly. Um, exactly. definitely has a place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on the on the on the topic of MMA training, um, it's it's funny like you go full circle with, with what you hear. I know, I obviously spoke yeah. to yourself, and uh, I was there, like a mentor of mine when I was a lot really younger. Was like Stevie B, at, at mm-hmm. Steve Brindle, mm-hmm. and like it was like well, MMA is MMA. We need to do striking for MMA, wrestling for MMA, mm-hmm. and um, you know grappling for MMA, mm-hmm. um, jiu jitsu with the idea of strikes, and I, I've kind of. I have, I have two thoughts, kind of much like S&C. If I have a guy who's got a low training age, I want him to do the fundamental human movements and have a kind of a, some prerequisites I want him to meet before they go on to other stuff. Mm. Um, I feel like the amateur MMA guys still need that, mm. uh, in, especially the guys I come across of go and learn how to hip escape and escape mount and do yeah. all these things without getting hit in the face and learn how to wrestle and, and things, learn how to throw a jab, learn all these like basic, movements hip hoisting double legs jabs cross you know because there's a lot of guys that are amateur and don't know how to do that and and like doing it when they're in a pro session and they're getting punched in the face by pros they're definitely not going to learn how to do it um, <laughs> yes but the whole thing of, of MMA is MMA now and there's a big been a big change at our club Renegade now where especially for the pros like I say I actually think some of the lower level amateurs do need to go to a, a and maybe I do feel like people Maybe the further above going to a beginner's class and learning how to hip escape and mount escape and how to lock up a triangle and going to the purple bats class who teaches on a Monday night because they want to be in the pro session on a Monday morning. Mm. I do think a lot of amateurs do need to go to classes and get tuition and learn basics, but there's been a big shift now towards like I've talked before about individual skills, but a lot of guys now and our gyms definitely move towards MMA is MMA, jiu-jitsu yeah. is jiu-jitsu, and they're almost different sports now. I mean, I watch jiu-jitsu and I, I admire it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not built amazingly for it, but uh, it's a completely different sport to mixed martial arts. And, and you can tell by the, the individuals that go to the, the two different sessions mm-hmm. usually now. Uh, they're, they're just different rec- prerequisites for flexibility, mobility, strength, power, um, even like just personality traits and things like that. You can see a broad... <laughs> difference like you know <laughs> everyone yes. know what I'm talking about but there is there is a big a big difference and I think like training mixed martial arts um when you're grappling is very yeah. important training when even when you're looking at wrestling taking into account that Lily's MMA and like I've been told it for a long time like yourself Brad Pickett Steve Steve Brindle have said for years like MMA is MMA but I think it's took a few um performances in our gym and just sort of like seeing the higher level of, of of that to be like the way that we want our higher guys to go. Mm. Um, but like I say, I do feel like amateurs still need grounding in basics. Yeah, um, basics. Kind of basics. Like, uh, yeah, I think there's... People trying to train like high-end pros when they're, you know, yeah. low level and like they do need... To, kind of like S&C, you know, if yeah. you're George St. Pierre, do what the hell you want. Like you've yeah. done all them years of training, you know your body, you've tried loads of modalities, you do what you want. If you're an upcoming 18, 19 year old, yeah, the kind of a process we want to follow that we think is good, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for for doing the basics well, and you can always improve on fundamentals. You can always sharpen fundamentals. Um, I think uh, it's uh, 
I mean, the cliche that we use all the time is that, you know, with boxing, focus on a relatively small number of different techniques, but it's all about how you apply those. Whereas then you've got something like jiu-jitsu where you've got a lot more basic techniques um, and people get very interested in learning the advanced techniques, whereas actually most of what you see tends to be the basics but applied with better timing, better uh, awareness. Yeah. I mean, even more so in mixed martial arts, if you see what works, if you watch, if you look at what works on the grand scheme of things, it it is... The basics and then and and yeah the 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 flashiest and that comes back to your point about even and again it's, it's it's all ramblings but it's all related as in yeah um training time and and, and and training volume if you're using sessions an hour two hours and three hours of your week learning techniques that aren't applicable to your sport mm-hmm. and, and, and you're sparring people that aren't giving you the feel that you're going to get in your sport you know a guy's just going to lie on the back and do this. And, and there's a time and a place for for that. And, and if you're competing in jiu-jitsu, that's different. But I think especially for mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. you might be just wasting two or three hours of your week, spending time yeah. learning things that uh, – and, and don't be wrong, things are great to learn and it's great to always have an open mind. But um, the sport now is starting to go where people can make careers out of it. And you can't, you've got to see it as a as a – a bit more professional and as a job, you know, yeah. like, oh, I just seen yeah. this on the telly this week, so I'm going to do this. Kind of like you, an NFL player wouldn't go into practice and go, right, coach, I seen this on last night, so <laughs> we're going to do this. Like, and don't be wrong, there is, like, like, I'm pretty sure like Conor McGregor and guys like that have their yeah. moments and they think of something and they do it and it's, and it's wonderful. But again, like he's been coached for years he's done all of the groundwork all of the dog work and yeah. you might see something now and be in a position to go you know what I think I can do this and, yeah. and, he, and, he'll, and he'll do it but you know like again and again that's the difference between an elite guy I'll let an elite guy who's lifted for years tell me whether he wants to Olympic lift jump whether he, whether he wants you know I'll let him dictate what mm-hmm. this is the adaptation you want but you could pick this this or this you know like whatever you want, whatever you feel comfortable doing. Whereas the beginner will probably do what yeah. they can do well and mm-hmm. I can coach them to do well. Mm-hmm. It, but that doesn't, do you know what I mean? It's the same yeah. with MMA. I'm yeah. going uh, to teach you, so with the re- I'm going to teach a beginner head up, back straight, mm-hmm. elbows in. Yeah. But then you'll watch an elite wrestler and they'll just stuff and they'll, they'll, yeah. they'll get into work and I'll be like, oh, that's not what I was taught. Or Floyd Mayweather <laughs> will drop his lead hand all the time. It's like when we still teach. Yeah. When you watch powerlifters um, setting a, a new deadlift world record, that it's not the way that you teach a beginner to deadlift. It's, yeah. uh, um, it, but it's, it, it's the same thing. It's you don't start with that. Um, you start with something that looks sort of very, you know, um, uh, sort of broken down technical, uh, and then it evolves from there. I think. Um, I think. It, as you were saying, you know, the way that you get an elite athlete to do something isn't always the way that you'll, uh, you'll teach it to a beginner. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So sort of moving on a little bit, let's, um, let's talk about um, online, online material that people might want to, to look at to, if they want to find out a bit more about this sort of thing or strength conditioning or anything like that, because there's a lot of material out there and, 
I know one thing that people tend to find difficult is sort of separating out what's good from, you know, what's just trendy or, you know, what's... Are there any key pointers that you would give people as to what to look for um, if they're they're trying to educate themselves about this? Yeah, I mean, I always... um... A few people ask me like where can where can I start start reading reading first and and I always I do actually feel that texts are a little bit better to begin with to, to start to read than looking online for that reason that there's just so much good information and misinformation as there is at this time with some yeah. of the stuff with the, with the corona. Nobody likes to read books anymore, do they? I think I remember being at um, uh, it was a uh, conference I think and there was a bookstore there and I saw a couple of um, young looking sort of physio grads probably walk past and they had a look at that and they go I don't really read books anymore and some of the other one goes yeah it's all online isn't it um, I thought ah oh, there's uh, I think some is I think you miss you miss a lot yeah. off, uh, I mean audio books are fine and, and things like that for the SNC I do like a, I do like a yeah. hard text um but there's like i mean there's a great book that's just come out that's a little bit more in depth that um called agile periodization um (laughs) but the the um the the place i send most people to go that are sort of interested in training kind of understand training but aren't like (laughs) doing degrees um i tend to say like uh dan john's work's very good a lot of his books are really good um and the head of my uni actually dan clevers released a book last year uh, the little black book of training wisdom, and that's it. Layman's terms explains the training process very well. Um, and then there's books like your your governing bodies, your N- NCSA and or, or the UKSCA, and they all of those produce different different things, and they're they're pretty good texts to start with. Um, as far as what you see online, it's really hard, and, and it it is hard because un- unless you know what you're looking for, even media platforms that used to share a lot of good coaches that I used to look up to as a kid and used to watch things. I look at the stuff now and <laughs> maybe it's because everyone's got to make a living and, and, and you know, but I see a lot of crap now. Um, just because someone works with a certain athlete doesn't mean that they necessarily know what they're doing. You don't know the deal that they're getting to work with that athlete. They don't, you don't know whether they're doing it for free, whether they're paying the athlete, whether they're actually work. There's so much um, yeah. mysticism in yeah, what you see online and who they're training and what they're doing and it it really is hard. I think the things I say is like that they're not like if if anyone's going, I know the secret and no one else does. That's yeah. like alarm bells yeah. sh- straight away. Um, and there's there's various companies and and methodologies that are very much like that. They're like like my smart way no one else's way I know what I'm doing and this that and I think um, trick two that's an alarm bell that's an that's a massive alarm bell Um, as far as what's good most of it's not going to look too sexy to be honest Um, for MMA guys in this country guys a guy who I think has really led the way for a lot of guys is William Wayland um a lot of the upcoming younger coaches have seen some of his work. I think I think that's really good. And then there's there's obviously different people in different facets of of who work in SNC. Like I got guys on my university and things on, on my course, and, and different people who work in team sports. And there's bits that you can take off everyone. My SNC coach Gabe's a sprinter, so there's a lot of speed stuff that I've took off him. And I use certain things where applicable, certain things not so applicable. But 
Um, get them on for a future episode as well. Um, talking yeah, about very good. And yep. a lot of the stuff he's done with me has probably been my weaker side of things as an athlete, which is why I I, I wanted him to wanted to work with him. As I've always done a lot of strength work, carries very strong physically, but like sort of like speed probably didn't know the smartest and safest ways to train that and obviously working with someone like that then has, yeah. has opened my eyes and then I can pass that on to my athletes and my guys as well um, it's, I, I'm saying it's really hard to look online and, and know what's good and from athletes to just just because you're a good athlete like they, they don't think better critically than the gem pop so it's just as many women that go to me well I'm doing my glutey band workout and I'm having detox tea and I'm doing this I've got athletes going I'm taking CBD oil and I'm doing auto portal stuff all the time and and like if it makes you feel good great but but it, it, it's because someone's good at something doesn't necessarily mean they can distinguish what's good and what's bad online and, and with training and there are a lot of charlatans you see with supplements you see with sponsorships you see with training modalities um yeah. i think the biggest thing is is there's, just, there's not a lot to, <laughs> there's not a flashy gimmick to sell before it's yeah. similar to your game uh the, the your experience your uh integrity your kind of troubleshooting and toolbox is mm-hmm. what you're selling yeah not a modality and if anyone's ever pushing that their way i just think like um a lot of the guys at renegade work with a friend of mine uh, Crusader strength and because they, li- they live over the north side of Birmingham and like he's great like go to I, I care more that a guy does some good SNC than yeah. anything else like, I get annoyed at the guys who complain everyone's stronger than them but are sat there doing yoga like, <laughs> but the guys that we've got uh, like Leon and a few of the guys go to Johnny Velocity and uh, Jonathan Reynolds and, and he does a good job with, with their guys and uh, there's like Crusader does a good job, job with some of their guys some guys work with me um, I think as long as you've got a good coach most 80% of what we do is probably going to be the same yeah um, it's where someone's offering something unique um, I just start to alarm bells start to go a yeah. little bit because like that. there's no secret even this stuff of like rounded back lifting and um Odd objects and and all the like different differing uh, funky things, knees over toes squats that are all now really uh, publicised. There's text of like 1920s carnival wrestlers doing them, and there's text of like Iranians in like the late 1800s doing like judo squats on the toe. You know, yeah. it's all been done before, so there's no there's nothing that new. There really um, is nothing new under the sun. Uh, so I'd say that's the best way to distinguish is actually see how much smoke and mirrors are the is yeah. the person putting up um because like there's there's not there's not mysticism behind it things yeah. work things don't work does that make sense like absolutely yes um so if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online what are your what's the best way to do that um, so I have a an inst- I have two Instagrams and I've had many over the years which people give me a bit of flack for because sometimes I just can't with social media and uh, <laughs> then I decide then I decide I probably need it for business. Um, but I have a, a combat sports one that's just me yeah. as, as an athlete, um, which we will wait and see what happens with that. 
because the plan was to potentially compete again and have a run <laughs> and maybe try and uh, get the world title and go to the UFC. Well, but Corona's like, made me think otherwise again. So um. It's like they always say, isn't it? That uh, retiring is the easy bit, but it's staying retired that's hard. Um, yeah, although this is helping, I must admit, with, with the financial uncertainty of, of um, at the moment, it's kind of uh, <laughs> chasing dreams is great, but uh, you need yeah, to keep a level head sometimes. But um, I have a, a strength and conditioning page as well, Chris Mere Strength and Conditioning, and um, or I believe it's Chris Mere Strength and Conditioning on Instagram. Um, and that links to my website as well, uh, which also links to a Patreon, which I'm starting to put a lot of... Um, a lot of content on there now, like things from, from essays that I've written for university and, and musings and, and workshops I've been on. Um, the, the reason I've started to do that is just, I just get, I don't know about yourself, but I just get so many messages on social media. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm keen to help everyone and I'll always try to help everyone, but um, as I was the best way to put it, the same people ask for the free advice all of the time. <laughs> so... Uh, Patreon was a way I thought well I can put a lot of musings and ideas on, online and uh, yeah. it, I get a small token feedback on some of the work and um, it can help obviously support taking the time to write more in-depth um, yeah. work um, but yeah uh, Instagram um, which links to the website and Patreon um, at the moment if you want to just look at what I do with the guys or um, have any questions or, or potentially want to work with me in the future um, yeah feel free to get in touch on those Brilliant. Well, thanks for that, Chris. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come back and talk to us again. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing lots more from you in the future. Hi, I'm Steve and I produce the Combat Sports Clinic podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. If so, you should head over to our website at www.combatsportsclinic.net and sign up to our free newsletter. It will keep you up to date with our latest content releases and other news about Rosie and the athletes she's working with. We also share any offers and discounts with our mailing list first, so it pays to sign up. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you again soon.